All right. Well, we've been in this, uh, we're in the seventh uh, week of this small group series that we've called Seek First. Uh, Seek First is taken that verses, Seek First, the kingdom of God. And, and all of these things will be added to you. And Jesus is specifically talking about your needs, right? He's talking about those who are following him, who are struggling with food to eat, clothes to wear, and, and a roof over their head. That was their great tension. And so Jesus is coming and saying, even in the context of your life, if even these really important and powerful things that you need, I want you to recognize even in the need of them, the kingdom is priority. And if you give yourself to the priority of seeking God first. Hey, I will provide for everything that you need. That's just the kind of God that he is. He's a good and kind and compassionate and loving Lord who is invested into your life. When he talks about his kingdom coming, we've been talking about for the last six weeks and all the pieces of it and what that means and his reign and his rule, the tension that we face that has come, but not yet fully understanding last week that the power of God is present in his kingdom coming, that we believe and we move with the understanding, if we will surrender ourselves to him, that he is a powerful God who wants to move in the lives of his people. And that sometimes we have to kind of deal with and handle maybe the disillusion we have of God not moving historically in our life. But rather than being a person who just focuses on the not yet part of the kingdom, we say, but we know his kingdom has come and we will begin to pray and believe in power for the things that God has, right? So it's just living in this place of recognition, Jesus' kingdom, and we want to seek it first and all of its understanding is our priority, and so in that, again, I encourage you, if you've not listened to the podcast, go back and listen just to familiarize with you, uh, familiarize yourself with some of these pieces and, uh, and then end this just ultimately from last week, recognizing God is a God of power. And when he comes with his kingdom, that's his purpose is to express that power. And some of that this morning, we're going to look at it. We're not talking about power this morning. It's going to be looking in a uniquely different way, but to recognize again this morning that there's this piece of God of expressing his power. The word I want to focus on this morning is the word allegiance. All of you have pledged allegiance to the American flag probably since you were in kindergarten, right? So you've used this word a bunch. You intuitively understand what it means to, to give allegiance to someone or to something. And then we want to take time this morning and look at a very familiar story that reveals an important reality about the kingdom of God. It's the story of the rich young ruler. Now, when looking at Scripture, one of the more difficult verses about the kingdom of God in Scripture is Matthew 19, 24. The verse says this, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. As you look at the story surrounding which we're going to read in a few minutes, I want you to see these, part, what, see these parts. What you find is a sincere young man. He's looking to make sure he's done everything he needs to do to receive eternal life. If ever there was a promising candidate for the kingdom, it's this guy. He's young, he's moral, he's spiritually convicted, and he's wealthy. The wealthy piece actually is a very important, in fact, it's probably the most important attribute about this man as, you, as, as we see in the context of the story. It's really important to the whole story. 
So as I read through the whole scripture this morning, starting in verse 16, 26, I want you to kind of get a picture, kind of take these words I've named, begin to see the man, begin to see his life, begin to see his questions, begin to see his heart, begin to see Jesus's response, and then maybe begin to wrestle with the tension of what Jesus is saying here. Here we go, starting in verse 16. Just then a man came to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, have eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, and he named five of the, the commandments from the Ten Commandments. Says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You should not give false testimony. You should honor your father and mother. And then he adds on, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then Jesus goes a little further. He says, again, I tell you, it's actually easier for a camel to go to the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly, greatly astonished, right? They were shocked. This did not compute with them, right? This did not make any sense. The, the gravity of their astonishment is telling. It's really a central point of the entire verse. They were astonished at the words that Jesus was saying because they were taking Jesus very literally. The statement that Jesus made was a very literal statement. They were receiving what Jesus said to say, rich people cannot get into the kingdom of heaven. It'd be just as easy for them to do that as an actual camel going through the eye of a needle. They asked, then who can, if they can't be saved, Jesus, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I'm going to start with a teaching this morning that I grew up with uh, that uh, was honestly just untrue. I'm going to share something. Those of you who've been in church maybe for, you know, uh, for maybe 20, 30, or 40 years, some of you have probably heard this about this story, and I'm just going to kind of give you upfront knowledge that the story I'm about to tell you, what I learned growing up about the eye of the needle and the camel, that's just not true. I was taught that there were two types of gates at a city wall. There was a large gate for animals to walk through, and then a smaller gate called the eye of the needle that pedestrians, people like you and me, that they would use to walk through. And the idea was that sometimes the idea, if a, if a camel were then to not go through the big one, but to go through the small one, that they would have to then kneel down, right, and surrender everything on their pack, right, on their back to then kind of crawl through. And the idea, the moral of the teaching, right, was that if you're going to, if a rich person is going to enter the kingdom of God, that it's possible, but they're going to have to strip themselves of everything and surrender fully to God to enter into the gate. 
And the reality is that's just not a true statement. Now, I'm not saying the theology of that's not true. I'm just saying there's no such thing in history ever of a of two types of gates and one being called the eye of the needle. How many of you grew up with that teaching? Anybody grew up with that teaching? Okay. Some of you grew up with that. It's just not true. Sorry to burst your bubble in that, right? Because the idea is that these great uh, pastors were trying to look at rich people, try to keep them inside their four walls because they provided for their salary. So they wanted to give them an option and help them to build a theology. Says, well, no, 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 we don't really, Jesus doesn't really mean that, right? And so I'm going to build you a theology that's just not true. That, and then basically it's this. Pastors are prone sometimes to go share something that they heard someone else say without doing factual basis, and then it grows over time, and then everybody believes it, and it's just not true, all right? So unfortunately, there are things that you believe today that your pastor taught you that just aren't true. I can't name all of them this morning. I don't know what they are. I may have led you to some of them. I apologize in advance before heaven if that were the case, right? But to know this morning that when Jesus is coming in the morning, I want you to hear me say very clearly, Jesus is looking at them saying, literally, rich people cannot enter the kingdom of God. Affluent people, which we represent, right? If we have roof over our head, food to eat, money in our bank, cars, then we are the affluent. And Jesus is saying, as you understand salvation, the affluent cannot be saved. It's a literal statement not trying to sugarcoat anything, and you should be asking, oh my gosh, does that mean I'm not saved, right? And the beautiful thing is, yes, you are, so let's spend the rest of our time unpacking what this actually means and what Jesus is trying to get across to his listeners. Now, in this, the thing we need to begin to, so the, the place that we understand them is, that, is this. In biblical times, this is really important for the theology of this moment, in biblical times, it was a common, this is probably not you, but this was them. It was a common assumption among the Jewish community and among all the disciples and among the rich young ruler. It was taken from their wisdom literature and from their Deuteronomy 28 that wealth was a sign of God's blessing and it was a sign of reward for faithful service. So every good Jew was raised in the assumption that wealthy people were closer to God because God thought wealth and money and affluence was a sign of God's blessing in their life. And so the story begins with this false dichotomy, this false belief that they've all bring to the table, right? They're all bringing to the table, and Jesus just meets them there. He doesn't take them on a journey to reveal to them their false narrative, right? Their false picture of theology around wealth to change that and to actually begin to show the danger of wealth. But in this, right, Jesus makes the statement again in verse 24, said, hey, wealthy, entering the camp, eye of the needle, blah, blah, blah. Verse 23, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? And that's why the disciples were astonished. Jesus, again, is challenging everything they know about money and wealth in a very real sense. And naming wealth as an obstacle to salvation Jesus is undermining, which is important, he's undermining a fundamental part of their religious worldview. They have a worldview of wealth that they had just accepted, and Jesus in this moment is using the story to challenge it in their understanding of the kingdom of God. They believe this man was closer to the kingdom of God because of the blessing of God's wealth in his life 
Therefore, Jesus' words were astonishing, saying, no, it's, man, affluence and wealth makes it incredibly difficult. The heart of this young man, or the heart of Jesus and his dealings with this young man can be summed up in one word. Jesus is looking at him, and he's looking at his question, He's looking at the nature of his questioning. He recognizes the man's heart, and what he's looking for is allegiance. Allegiance, that's the word this morning. You all understand what it means. It means loyalty or commitment to a cause or to a group or to a superior. Like in the context of our lives and everything that we do, We are based off of our allegiance to God. He is our Lord and King. We follow him. All of us understand allegiance, right? I think about as as an Atlanta sports fan, right? As an Atlanta sports fan, allegiance to our teams has been brutal for the last 47 years of my life. Can I get an amen from somebody? Yeah, right? Like in all of my life, in all of my life, right, I, I have just one championship from a true Atlanta team. I did pick one of the two larger college football teams in the state of Georgia to root for Georgia. They've only given me one national championship. I was six years old when it happened, so I don't really remember it, right? And the Braves gave me one, and then other years of getting this close and failing like the Falcons did against the Patriots. Living with brutal, brutal reality of my allegiance. And people are like, why don't you just change teams? And I'm like, because that's not what allegiance is about. Allegiance is devoting myself to a team, even though they kill me every year. And I never live in hope of them winning a championship. Because it hurts too bad to hope somebody to say amen. Allegiance is that. It's even when it's hard, when it's overwhelming, when it's difficult. I'm committed to something. No matter what else is going on in my life, nothing else comes before it. So Jesus is here with this young man and he's saying, I'm looking for your allegiance, your loyalty, your commitment to this cause, to this group and to me. Allegiance in the story is more about where the man's loyalty and commitment lie. Jesus is coming attacking, or not attacking, he's, he's calling that out. He starts off, um, this man, he starts off like a good Jewish man asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. I'm just going to give you a heads up. The question of what he must do to inherit eternal life, that's kind of the foundation tension that Jesus is trying to get at, right? What must he do to inherit eternal life? Jesus goes along with the conversation, right, by naming, well, let's just name the commandments. And he names what's called the Decalogue, right? He names the five, he names the five uh, commandments that are related to what a person does in the Ten Commandments. The other five are internal. These are the external ones, right? He's naming the external commands. They're kind of based on outward action, right? And so he's coming and naming these things. And the man says in all sincerity in verse 20, he says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? What do I still lack? In this story, he deserves credit. He deserves credit for the perception that he has inside of him that there's more to serving God and therefore to finding eternal life than just conventional morality. He's looking like, well, I've done these. I just know there's something else. There's something else, right? 
In Jesus' next statement, he begins to lead him to this allegiance. He says in verse 21, Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The words of Jesus reveal this man's heart for the young man. The man says, this is too hard, right? But the idea of the words that Jesus says, just sell and give, which are then followed by the allegiance words of come and of follow me. Here's the interesting thing you have to recognize about the language and even about the finances. This language of come follow me is akin and actually just like the words to Peter, when he says, Peter, drop your nets, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. It's the same language he used with James and John, right? To call them to come follow him. Here's the thing that's happening in these verses. Jesus is looking at him saying, my desire and my will is that you would come and be one of the twelve. That's the language. He's literally calling this man to forego and give up everything because that's what's required to be this level of disciple with Jesus. That's why in other places you have like Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, right? He was a very wealthy man. Jesus used what Jesus was buried in his in his tomb, right? Jesus didn't call that of him. Jesus had Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus began to follow him, not as one of the twelve, but called him, and Zacchaeus gave up half of his earnings, right? We know from Scripture that Abraham was incredibly wealthy, right? And so Jesus in this moment is saying, looking at him, is saying, listen, I'm calling you to a unique level of discipleship. The call that I have on you is unique in this moment. And if you're going to follow me, like I said to Peter, James, and John, and Bartholomew, because you don't know who he is, but he's a disciple, right? Now, saying to all these guys, you're going to have to, like them, leave everything and come follow me. So it's important to the story to recognize the level of discipleship that he's calling this man to. He's calling him to be one of the twelve. Maybe it would have been one of the 13. I have no idea. But in the story, we know what happens. The man says it was just too hard. For the, listen, the secret sauce, right, for Jesus, kind of the end-all, be-all for him, it wasn't about the giving away of the possessions, right? Giving away of possessions, renunciation, renouncing all of his wealth, that didn't save him. What saved him was him becoming a disciple of then coming and following Jesus, eternal life, again, was not found in the action of giving away. It was in his heart's surrender of allegiance to Jesus. The wealth and the affluence was just the primary massive obstacle that Jesus named in his life. Here's the thing about it and what can't get lost in the story. And I want you all to hear this. This is true across Scripture, and this is going to be something you need to chew on. You can't pass over this fact. What can't get lost in the story is the danger that Jesus is naming of affluence and of wealth. As one theologian I read said, he said, recognizing that Jesus will call each person to handle their finances differently in life. And here's the, here's the quote. The church, the church in reading this will be parting company with Jesus' teaching at a fundamental level 
if it loses sight of the principle that affluence is an essential opposition to the kingdom of heaven. You can't miss that from Scripture. Affluence in wealth is in essential opposition to the kingdom of heaven. That's something to chew on and unpack. You know, it's like it's wealth becomes something that gives us abilities to provide for self and to control our own destiny. And so wealth keeps us from needing someone or something. Wealth becomes a massive obstacle becomes a massive obstacle even in our culture, doesn't it? Where we think affluence and wealth is the goal and we should aspire to it with all that we are to reach to a place of comfort, which is not biblical. We have to recognize that affluence and wealth is an idol that we all come up against 100% of Americans. It's a primary thing that we deal with. And we have to wrestle with it. I'm going to leave it there, and I'll come back to that in a bit. But I want to leave the discomfort there. I'm not looking at you saying, you better. I'm saying, we, as in me, with you, have to recognize the idol of comfort around wealth and affluence that gives us control and power so that we can make people move because of what we have and can give. Or we become the people who just provide, but we never live in a place of need. In verse 23, I'm just going to name these. Jesus says the salvation of the rich was merely hard. But in verse 24, hear this, it's declared impossible. It was a literal camel through the eye of a very small needle that Jesus is getting at. This is the clear sense, right, of this picture. The camel was the largest animal in Palestine. And the disciples' response in verse 25, where they were astonished, right, and said, who who then can be saved? Well, it literally is in their lives, in this literal tension that they have of fear. And in verse 26, Jesus says, yeah, it's humanly impossible for a rich person to get saved. But do you see the language? Let's go read those two verses here. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and they asked, who then can be saved? I mean, when it says greatly astonished, like again, it'd be so great if you had someone up here who was like this, like theater and they were, and they were great and they were greatly astonished, right? Okay. They would just, this, this dramatic flair too. Cause what this, what's happening here? That's what they were experiencing. It was a dramatic astonishment. Like if this person who's wealthy and is so blessed by God and therefore is closer to God than even we were, right? And, and they can't come to Christ in their wealth so blessed of God, then, then who can? Because he's really the perfect candidate for salvation in the kingdom. Who then can be saved? You see the game that Jesus is playing? It's not a fair word to use, but kind of. Like he's starting over here and they're like, Jesus... What must I do to be saved? He's like, oh my gosh. Well, let's just jump into their game with them and just play it out. I'm going to tease this out for a little bit. I don't know, guys. Why don't you go take the Ten Commandments and obey them? I've done all of that. I've done it. Oh, okay, okay, great. Then why don't you go sell everything? 
Oh my gosh, because it's impossible for the wealthy and the rich and the affluent to actually become Christians. Oh my gosh, it's impossible. Yes, it's impossible for man. What does it say then? With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Do you see kind of this backward way of getting to this point of saying, you can't do anything. It's not about what you can do. And your affluence, your theology is wrong. Affluence is literally one of the greatest obstacles to someone coming to Jesus. You need to know that you have to change your theology of wealth and affluence and comfort. It's not God's will that we give the best energy of our life to go make a lot of money so that we can be a success in God's eyes. Wealthy people aren't a success in God's eyes unless they are 100% devoted in all things to Jesus in every way. So here we go. Three things that we see in these verses. Number one. Salvation is not found of what the man could do. For the disciples, again, we already named, they had the cultural assumption that this man was a prime candidate for salvation. That he was under God's blessing. And the man knew he himself was moral. He knew himself was a good guy. But Jesus is saying, you can't save yourself. You can't do it. His wealth couldn't save him. Even stripping him of his wealth, that wouldn't save him. Only God is possible of saving a human being. It speaks into the kingdom saying, stop talking about what you need to do and what you're doing and the power of your own doing and your own wealth or lack thereof that saves you. Recognize with me the kingdom is of the power of God and he only is possible of saving you from hell and saving you from anything else that you're wrestling with. What is overwhelming you today that you want God to move in? Only he can save you from the overwhelming nature of what's happening. Jesus says you can't save yourself. You're welcome that you're miserable. It's me showing you you can't save yourself. Will you turn or like this man will you say, I like my control, my affluence, my abilities more than I like yours, and we turn from God? God's doing a, doing them a solid, y'all. It's doing them a solid. You're killing yourself, dude. Your wealth. You put your assurance that God's blessing is on you because you possess it, and it is not. It is not. Again, he's combating. He's, listen, he's actually combating this cultural view among the disciples also. He's trying to combat it in us by putting it in Scripture. The whole story is a journey to change. Change of their cultural assumption of wealth. A cultural shift of their assumption of affluence. Cultural shift of assumption around the power of one to save themselves with their own actions, that they have to do something. Salvation is possible for the wealthy and for the poor by God alone. That's what he's getting at. A camel cannot rid itself and then save itself through walking through. The camel is only saved as God picks it up and just shoves it through. Right? That's the analogy to its fullness. It was terrible. Anyway, number two. 
poor, poor camel. All right, number two, God can save the wealthy. With God, all things are possible, verse 26, but it's clear in this story and others. Matthew 6, Matthew 21, tell the same story, right? That a person's affluence and pursuit of wealth is a very real obstacle people must deal with if they're going to be a disciple of Jesus. The more affluent and the more wealthy you are, the more secure you are in your own finances, your 501, your 501, whatever, what's that called? 401k in the, in the con, not 501, 501c3, no, 401k, right? In the context of your savings account, right? Like the more, the bigger that is, the harder it is for you to live trusting and leaning into Jesus. And that's the, it's just the cultural language. It's what Jesus is trying to shift. He's just trying to warn. Money's not evil. It isn't. It's, it's just a commodity that we use. But we all know it can take too strong a place in our heart. A sign of that is if all of a sudden a bill, big bill comes through and you start freaking out, then maybe you have a too strong a place of confidence in the money that you have. It just is what it is. It's just a sign to say, hey, don't forget to trust me. Don't forget to name the obstacle and deal with it. For Jesus, it's about their subject to his allegiance to him. They must be willing to forego everything to follow him. The thing about that with finances, again, I've already named these people, right? So the Jesus isn't saying, to all, it's not a literal, some people take it literally, like a Shane Claiborne, some of you know Shane Claiborne, I read his book years ago, he talked, he used this in kind of a literal language that I just didn't think was helpful to the theology of it, so some people have it in a small camp, have a theology literally, that everyone has to sell everything that they have, right, that wasn't the call of God on everybody, but the call of God on everybody is, you better sit down long enough with your wealth and your affluence and have a long enough conversation with God that you live in assurance that at any moment he could take it away and you'd be okay with it. The thing I, I, I loved when I was going through this, I thought about, how does that happen? Well, don't miss what the scripture said. Let me get back up here and find it real quick. Um, it was, all right, yeah, verse 21. If you can pull that up for me, Josh, verse 20, that section of verse 21, please. If I get it for Josh today back there, thank you. Verse 21, you see it right there? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and most of us stop. But you can, he says, and then you will have the treasure of heaven. Oh, my gosh, guys. And then you can come and you can live intimately with me and I will share my deepest secrets with you. I will explain all the parables that nobody else gets. I will secretly share them with you when I pull away with you with the other 12. And I cannot wait to share it with you. I can't wait to make be this intimate with you. I can't wait to make you in the inner circle. Don't ever forget, Jesus had three, Peter, James, and John. Then the next level is Jesus had the 12, which could have been the 13, it sounds like. And then Jesus had the 120. Then he had the thousands. I would much rather be part of the three, but not part of the three, at least the 13. And he invited him to be part of the 13. Read through the scriptures. 
Jesus would sit down and tell them secrets. He would literally turn his back on everybody else. Treasures of heaven. Let me tell you this. Sit and hear this. This is super hard. This requires time and it requires the grace of Jesus. It requires you dying to culture, dying to the American dream, and live for the kingdom dream. What's the kingdom dream, Steve? It's simple. You sit long enough in the presence of Jesus where the treasures of heaven surpass in importance the wealth of this world because you know that intimacy with Jesus provides everything that you will ever need. And it's great to have this, but you don't need it, and you would let go of it in a moment because this treasure of heaven is so real. Don't forget the verse. It doesn't end with sell everything you have. It's then the treasures of heaven and intimacy with me. It's beautiful, guys. I'll be honest with you, this is what true Christianity is all about. Taking time long enough to deal with the hard verses, to get to the core of what it's about, so all of a sudden Jesus comes alive in you like you've never known before. How many of you are tired of the religious life that you're living? This is part of the answer. Number three, I am. I am. Only God saves. Number three, only God saves. But human, human beings have responsibility to listen, obey, and follow. Only God saves. That's the point Jesus gets at. But human beings have responsibility to listen, obey, and follow. So Jesus comes in the moment. He comes in with the rich young ruler. He looks at him and says, hey, listen, with God it's impossible for this man to be saved. With God it's possible. Anything's possible with God. But I submit to your will. If you don't want to follow me, I'm not going to make you. You see that? Only God saves, but human beings have responsibility to listen, obey, and follow. For those of you who are like in theological circles, you recognize there's a great tension between Reformed theology, like the Calvinist, right? And over here in the free will, kind of Arminian movement over here. And it all revolves around the sovereignty of God, his control of things, and then the, the, the responsibility of human beings. What's the tension, Right? I come from this free will place over here. I look at this and go, God wanted him to be saved. God willed that he would be saved. God was moving to save him, but looked and said, but you have a choice. Jesus invited him to come and follow in the same way he invited Peter to follow him so he could make him a fisher of men. The young man exercised his freedom to decline God's invitation, and Jesus did not override his decision. And here's the point. We don't know then if this man were ever saved, if he was ever saved. My reformed friends would say, but God would, God would have come back and then made him obey because so, he wanted him to be saved. And scripture is silent and doesn't tell us what happened. What we see is the man had a, had a choice in the moment. And it sounds like he never did because he never came part of the, he never, never came to 13. I'm just saying. Why is this important? With the, the possible, listen, with this in mind, the possible found in Jesus only becomes actual if Jesus' call to follow me is freely obeyed. Freely obeyed. God saves, but human beings, listen, they have a responsibility to listen, to obey, and to follow. The kingdom is dependent upon God doing his work and then us coming and following. And that's the invitation.
That's the invitation. The kingdom of God. It's about the power of God to save, the power of God to move in our lives. We can't I release you from feeling like you can do anything to make God happier and love you more than he already does. Right? When Jesus said, I love you, it was with everything he had, and he can't love you more than he does right now or love you less than he does right now. He just absolutely loves you, adores you right where you are in the middle of, like, absolute obedience and doing the Ten Commandments or doing none of the Ten Commandments. He just loves you. That's just who he is, right? And in that, you can't then save yourself by doing more. You need to submit and surrender to him, right? A wealth and affluence, you have to deal with this because right now it's an issue in your life today. You have to deal with it. And in the third piece, and in that, you have to surrender and follow him because God, he's not going to push you somewhere. He needs you to listen and obey. The kingdom of God is about these things. Toby, won't you go ahead and come and lead us as we pray. Father, you were good and you were kind and you're faithful. I think it was your faithfulness that was leading this man to conviction. You were so for him. That you spoke honestly with him. I think that every word you spoke was because you loved him. God, you loved him so much. You were willing to be honest and share the greatest obstacle of his life that was keeping him from the very thing he was aspiring to. And so, Jesus, I just ask this morning, whether here or in virtual world, God, would you even now just begin to stir in our hearts, God, where the obstacles are. God, would you begin to stir in us the places where we try to save ourselves and we just need to surrender to Jesus. Pray today, God, that you would put a heart in us, Lord, of obedience, God, to come and to follow you so that you can then share your secrets with us in an intimate relationship, God. I just pray today, Jesus, that the power of your kingdom would become alive in us in such a way we go... Okay, Jesus, you win. You're God of everything. So Jesus, come and do you and have your way in us. We pray this in your name. Amen. I hope that made sense this morning. I hope God was able to speak some things into you. Put his finger on some things. This morning I want to invite our prayer teams to come forward right now so you can see them. Uh, the idea of vintage is... I mean, we just believe that God loves to bless people through other people who pray for them, right? And so we have ministry teams. They're just prayer teams. They're just people just like you who we had talked to, and they said, yes, we'd love to do this. We'd love to love people by praying for them. We'd love to pray for anything going on in their lives. And this morning, I just would love to invite you to come forward and get prayer for anything going on in your life. I don't care how big it is or how small it is, right? It could be things we're talking about this morning. It could be anything else. It could be a job. It could be a family member. It could be a friend. It could be for just whatever you need to need prayer for this morning. We'd love just to, to see people continually getting prayed for by those who are here empowered to do so. Communion is available every Sunday. It's right here on both sides, and you come at your own leisure, right? As you come, you take the little wafer, you pick it up with your hands, you dip it into the grape juice, you pray and ask God to move, and then you eat it, right? And the idea of Scripture tells us this is do this in remembrance of me. The command, he says, because as you do this in remembrance, it reminds us of the cross of Jesus 
the act of his love, the power of his movement in our lives. It reminds us that the kingdom has come. There's a grace in these moments when you take this of, of God awakening us. And so as you take, remember, say, now, God, take what I'm remembering and make it come alive in me, Jesus. Take communion. When to come to the altar and just pray today, you can. And just worship where you are. Just asking you, don't don't just sit there and hop on your phone and figure out what the score is, the game coming up, or whatever it may be. Like, just give Jesus the next, like, five to seven minutes and say, I surrender all of this to you, God. Speak. All right? So he responds to the Lord leads, and I'll come pray us out in a minute.